Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church. I want to welcome you to this next installment in our series entitled Exodus. Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline of my message today. Uh, it's entitled Passover. In case you haven't checked the calendar, Passover is two days from now. It's coming up on Tuesday. Uh, but there's an amazing connection between the Old Testament and the New, between the observance of Passover and Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. I want to make that connection for you today if you've never made it before. Uh, because God is very serious about rescuing his people. And he was serious about it in Old Testament times when he brought the children of Israel, easy for me to say, the children of Israel out of Egypt. That's why this is called Exodus. It means the way out or how they got out. Um, And today we're going to talk about how the Passover figured into that rescue plan, as well as how Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper figures into the rescue plan and helps us remember the rescue plan that Jesus had for all of us when he died on the cross. Let me have a word of prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And I thank you, Lord, that the events of the past are recorded so we might learn from them today. I pray that you'll speak, Lord, and move me out of the way and teach us some things we need to know about Passover and about Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper. That we'll leave here today closer to you than what we came in. In the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. If you need a pen, by the way, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will be coming up and down the aisles, or our ushers will be coming up in the aisles, and they'll be glad to pass a pen to you if you didn't get one on the way in, so you can take some notes. Point one in your outline simply says this, that Pharaoh was stubbornly, he stubbornly refused to obey God, even though he knew he was wrong. If you haven't been with us during this series so far, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, moved down during the time of Joseph down to Egypt. They were rescued from famine, and they lived there for hundreds of years. During that time, the Egyptians subjugated them to slavery and used them to build their cities. Uh, The pharaohs became alarmed uh, when the Israelite population grew rapidly and became very strong and hardy, and so they beat them and treated them mercilessly, hoping to wear them down, but it only made them stronger. And the people of Israel cried out to God, and God heard them, and he sent a rescuer, a man by the name of Moses, spoke to him from a burning bush, and said, Moses, I want you to go rescue my people. I want you to go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let my people go, so they can go leave Egypt and go to the promised land, to the land of Israel, the same chunk of real estate we call Israel today. And so Moses and Aaron, his brother Aaron went in to the king, to Pharaoh, and told him, God says, let his people go. And Pharaoh liked his free slave, his slaves, whom he didn't have to pay to build his cities. And he said, I will not let your people go, God, your God's people go. They are my people. And Pharaoh considered himself to be a God. And so he said, no, if you want the people, then you'll have to take them by force. And God said, okay. And so last week we talked about that God sent a series of miraculous plagues upon the Egyptian people. Each plague was designed to strike out at the falsehood that the Israelites I mean, that the Hebrews had and when they, uh, the false confidence they had in worshiping Egyptian gods. The Nile River was turned to blood for over a week. The fish all died and the river stank. And it didn't do any good to pray to their river gods. The land was plunged into darkness for three days. Didn't do any good to pray to their sun god. The land was covered in frogs. Didn't do any good to pray to their god that looked like a frog. And God systematically showed them who the real god is. And at each and every turn, Moses would come back to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And so last week we talked through nine of the plagues. There was a tenth to come. You'll hear about it today. But each time, Pharaoh stubbornly refused to obey God, even though he knew he was wrong. Can you imagine meeting someone 
who stubbornly refused to do what was right, even though they knew they were wrong. When I was growing up, I just called that an older brother. Okay, I mean, yeah, <laughs> stubbornly refusing to do what's right, even though you know you're wrong. And it's one thing when you deal with your siblings. It's another thing, though, when you deal with a leader of a company or a country or a city. And yet we find ourselves in these places where everyone can say, hey, this isn't right. In fact, Pharaoh had people coming to him. There, the plagues had been done in a miraculous way. And at first, Pharaoh would, consort, would consult his magicians and his sorcerers. And he'd say, hey, can you do this too? And they were able to do some things pretty similar but after a few plagues had gone by, they said, Pharaoh, this is the hand of God. This is, we can't do this stuff. This is no trick. This is no illusion. This is the hand of God. But Pharaoh didn't repent. And so the Lord spoke to Moses one time and told him, this is from Exodus 9, and told him to tell Pharaoh what was going on and to remind him what was going on. Listen, this is from Exodus nine thirteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you don't, I'll send more plagues on you and your officials and your people, and then you will know there's no one like me in all the earth. By now I could have lifted my hand and struck you and all of your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth, but I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth, but you still lord it over my people and refuse to let them go. I want to point something out from that paragraph. Pharaoh was so stubborn that God could only use him as a poster child for how not to live. Pharaoh, I could have destroyed you and all your people, but I'm going to be merciful to you. But the only way I'm going to be able to use anything in your life to bring me glory is if I use you as an object lesson for stubbornness and hard-heartedness. There's a life application for you and me in this. Don't be a poster child for how not to live. Look, when God speaks to us and his word is clear on things about how we're supposed to conduct our lives, we are foolish if we go against him and think that the consequences won't be painful. Pharaoh knew, plague after plague, his own people coming to him, Pharaoh, we can't do this. This is the hand of God, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. He believed that his gods, the Egyptian gods, had placed him in the position of power. By div- he had a divine right to rule the people and said, no. These are my people, and I won't let them go. And it didn't matter what the evidence was saying. And there are so many times in our lives when we disobey the clear commands of the Lord. The Lord tells us not to commit adultery and not to be sexually immoral, and yet we do this over and over again in our culture, and then all of a sudden we end up with unwanted children and terrible diseases and broken homes and broken hearts, and we go, we can handle it. We can handle it. I will not listen to what the Bible says. The Bible's just trying to ruin my fun. And we forget all about the fact that, no, we are the Lord's. And he knows how we're supposed to live. The scripture tells us we're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to love our enemies and pray for the people who have mistreated us. We won't do it. Instead, we store up bitterness and anger in our heart. And over and over again, we forget that Bitterness and revenge is something that every day you dwell on bitterness and blame somebody else. It's like poisoning yourself, one sipping a little bit of poison every day and hoping the other person gets sick. And so even though we can have a great day and, and God says, hey, don't covet what your neighbor has. Be grateful for what you have. Don't covet. Don't long for their car or their house. 
You've been blessed with you have, even though we have a fine house and a fine car and a good family, we walk outside and we can't enjoy any of it because Bill or Susie or the people across town, they're living higher, at a higher standard than we are. And so we can't even enjoy a sunny day. And we forget over and over again that the Lord gives us commands and he is stunned at our stubbornness and our pride and we will not let it go. So there's a life application in this that goes far beyond Pharaoh. And if we're not careful and if we resist against, we stand squarely against what we know God's word says. We've had our best friends and people who love us the most say, hey, you need to forgive. You need to let that go. You need to go get some help with that. But we stubbornly refuse. Well, we can become a poster child for how not to live. I mean, kind of like those cigarette ads, you know, that they run now where the person has had the tracheotomy and it's hard and grotesque even to look at. And they go, this is what it's like to be a smoker. And those ads are just like, ugh. Because the only reason that you can use these folks is because this is what happens. They're poster children for what could happen. Zechariah 1.4 is one of many passages I could have picked. Later in Israel's history, one of their prophets, Zechariah, wrote these words to the Israel's leaders. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen and pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. I mean, wouldn't it be a horrible thing if the only thing that could be written on my tombstone is, here lies John Schmidt, a poster child for how not to live. Don't be like him. I really want more than that. (laughs) I hope you do too. Hey, this is someone who trusted the Lord. And look at how God blessed him. So there's a warning in all this. If you and I are going directly against, directly counter to what God wants us to do, if he says thou shalt, we say I will not. If he says thou shalt not, I can handle it. If we're going that way, this is a warning. Also, James 4.17 adds to it, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And if you and I know what to do, today's the day to do it. Do not stall. Let me encourage you. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to forgive, forgive. If you need to get help, get help and do it today. Learn from Pharaoh because he stubbornly refused. Plague after plague after plague. Nine of them. The whole land was in ruins. Locust plagues. Flies. Lightning, horrible lightning and hail that killed everybody out in the fields. And finally, nine plagues had been uh, carried out. One remained, and that brings us to point two. The last plague that God sent on Egypt broke Pharaoh's pride and set the Israelites free. Here's what God said, Exodus 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that... Pharaoh will let you leave the country. In fact, he'll be so eager to get rid of you, he will force you all to leave. Tell all the Israelite men and all the women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Uh, Just to pause here for a second, God had made Moses, the people saw what Moses had done, and they saw the stubbornness of Pharaoh, and Moses was elevated as a great man in all of Egypt. Even Pharaoh's own officials trusted in Moses. And so when the Israelites went and told their masters Hey, God's going to rescue us. I need your tea set. <laughs> I need that. Uh, I'd like that brooch. They say, here, take the earrings too. Just go. Just get out. And remember that because that's coming. 
Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, at midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, the oldest son of the lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one's heard before or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites, it'd be so peaceful, not even a dog will bark. And then you'll know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. A terrible plague was coming. The tenth plague was a plague that would strike Pharaoh's own house. Again, Pharaoh believed the gods, the Egyptian gods had placed him on the throne and his firstborn son after him. And so when Moses told him, your firstborn son will die tonight, you better believe that Pharaoh would have surrounded his son with the best green berets in all of Egypt. Spears at hand, nobody sleeps. There's somehow, there's going to be a plague that attacks my son. You don't let him through. But it would make no difference. Because the enemy they were fighting wasn't flesh and blood. They were fighting the angel of the Lord, the angel of death. Now, there's an important point to remember here. There's a note in your outline. God knows how to rescue his people. I mean, God knows how. Peter talked about this, one of Jesus' disciples. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials. He does. If you are facing a trial or a temptation in your life right now, call on the Lord. It is so foolish that we try to handle everything in our, in our lives on our own. I cannot tell you how many times people talk to me about something that's been bothering them for years. And I go, well, well what does the Lord say? And they go, well, what do you mean? I mean, well, I mean, when you pray about it, what, is, what answer you get? And they go, well, I don't pray about it. I worry about it. I do this because this helps a lot. You know, wringing your hands talking on the phone to 20 people who don't know any more than you do, that helps a lot resolve problems, doesn't it? And then we can worry together. It's kind of like a big group worry, which always helps me feel better. When your friends go, yeah, mm, wow, that does stink. Mm, bye. I just feel so much better. But what if I would come to the Lord? What if I'd say, Lord, I can't handle this. I need you. I mean, again, I mean, when I pray with people in my office, it is just amazing because they'll come in and they'll have this enormous financial problem or a health concern or a relationship problem in their family. I mean, it's just impossible to solve. I mean, nobody knows the answer. And I go, well, let's pray. And I'll reach for the hand and stuff and they go, okay, but then what are we really going to do? I mean, you know, I have to pray. As a pastor, I get a free microwave in heaven for every prayer that I pray. You know, I mean, it's part of the contract. Okay, you're a pastor. You have to pray. Okay. At the bank, they have to ask me if I want to open a checking account. I get it. But what are you going to really do? I go, well, no, no. We're going to really pray to a real God who really answers prayer and really rescues people. Really? And so the life application for you and me in this is we must really rely. We must rely on God when we face trials and temptations that are too big for us. The Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, learned this. This is a great passage. You need to mark this. 2 Corinthians 1, because people ask me, they go, man, I wish I could be like those guys in the Bible. They had all this stuff wired all the time. They always understood it. And I go, no, they were on a learning curve like the rest of us. Paul, when he was out on one of his missionary journeys, was facing death, and here's what he wrote. In fact, we expected to die, he and his missionary traveling companions. But as a result, listen to this, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God. That's the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. I love it. 
It's just a pastoral thing, I guess. Anyway, uh, we learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We've placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And Paul said, you know what we learned out of the whole experience? We were scared to death that we were going to die. Apparently, they were facing some really tough situations. But you know what we learned? We learned that we got to quit trying to figure things out on our own and really rely on the God we talk about. The God whom we preach raises people from the dead. Which makes sense. Since he can do things that are impossible for us, maybe we ought to rely on him more. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. And that's exactly what God was teaching the Israelite people and what he was teaching Moses and the hard lesson that Pharaoh would have to learn because he was so stubborn that he wouldn't break until his own son died. And God said, you'll know. You think you're all that, Pharaoh? You're not. And that brings us to point three, if you flip your outline over. So God was going to rescue the Israelites. There was going to be someone who died in all the Egyptian houses, but nobody in the Israelite houses. There'd be a loud wail all throughout Egypt because there would be somebody dead everywhere in the Egyptian houses, but there wouldn't even be a dog that would bark in the Hebrew houses. How's that going to work? Well, here's how that came about. This is from Exodus 12. Announced to the whole community, this is God telling Moses again, Announce to the whole community of Israel that each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. The animal that you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. And you could circle no defects. The whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They're to take some of the blood. They, they would have slit its throat and caught the blood in a bowl. And then they would have taken some hyssop branches and dipped it in there. And then they would have done this with it. Uh, at twilight, they must slaughter the lamb. Then they're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. One per household. If there weren't enough people in the household, they could get another household to join with them. But they had to stay in the house all that night because the angel of death was going to pass through the land. And here's, here's where the significance comes from. That same night, they must roast the meat over the fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency or with haste, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I'll execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. This includes Pharaoh himself. For I am the Lord. There are no other gods. First commandment is you shall have no other gods besides me, before me. I'm it. I'm God. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you're staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's the big keeper here, that sentence. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. And they would have had guards all around him to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed, and Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. And Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people. Take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. That would be a change of attitude. Hmm. 
And the angel of death came to the land, and when he came to the houses where the blood was on the doorpost, he passed over, and no one died. And the next morning, and they had to eat the meal inside, they're, eat, they're roasting the lamb, and they had to eat all of it, and, and God had commanded them, eat it fully dressed, ready to go, because the angel of death came through there at midnight, 6 a.m. when the sun came up, the Egyptians were driving them out. Go, go now. And they were, it says later, they were shouting to them, leave now before we all die. They were scared that every one of them would be dead if the Israelites stayed another moment. And so they marched out like a conquering army with the Egyptians throwing jewelry and giving them anything they wanted. Just leave. Cash, jewels, anything. Take it. Go. Just leave. And so they plundered the Egyptians and walked right out the front gate of Egypt, broad daylight. A whole nation of slaves. That's the Exodus. And it's amazing. Nobody ever heard of something like that before. Because God made it possible. And the Israelites were spared from the terrible plague that broke Pharaoh's pride. The Israelites were spared of death, and they were freed from slavery because of the blood of a lamb. The life application for you and me is this. We have victory over sin and death because of the blood of the Lamb of God. We do. Peter talked about this. He says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors, and the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Remember the lamb that had to be sacrificed for the Passover had to be one-year-old, spotless, without defect. That lamb had never done anything. But the lamb died so the people inside the house could live. When Jesus died on the cross, he'd never sinned any time. But when the lamb died, the people who put their faith in him can live. Don't miss the connection. And if you think, well, John... Hey, you, you know, you're tying together things. I mean, that's all figurative and other things. Like, I don't know if the Bible writers really meant to tie Passover and Jesus' death on the cross together. Well, that brings us to point four. Because if, you're not, if you've never put the connection together, you need to. The bi- biblical writers intended very much to do this because God himself intended for us to do this. Point four says, God commended, commanded the Israelites to observe Passover annually so they would always remember how God rescued them. Exodus 12, this is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. As I said before, it's coming up Tuesday. Still to this day. It's a special festival to the Lord. This is the law for all time. Your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you'll reply, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. The life application for you and me is... We observe the Lord's Supper frequently, so we'll always remember how God rescued us through Jesus, the Lamb of God. Think I'm stretching things that don't belong together? Well, here's Luke 22. Here's Jesus himself talking about this. The night before he was crucified, he gathered his disciples together for a last meal. We call it the Last Supper because it was the last supper that they had together. Oh, okay. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
1,500 years earlier, Moses and the children of Israel had celebrated the Passover by sacrificing a spotless lamb. 1,500 years later than that, when Jesus was crucified, the night before he was crucified, Jesus had a Passover meal with his disciples. Point blank, don't miss this. It was no coincidence that Jesus was crucified at Passover. The spotless, innocent Lamb of God was sacrificed so the angel of death could pass over the people who put their faith in him. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. In fact, it was during the Passover meal that Jesus made this explicitly clear to his disciples. I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, he said, for I tell you, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the night before he's crucified, Jesus has a Passover meal with his disciples. Some of you were fortunate enough to come to a Passover meal that we hosted here uh, Wednesday night where all this is explained. Um, but during the Passover meal, bread and wine are used. And Jesus took some of the bread. And this is a matzah. It's um, bread made without yeast. It's kind of like a flat cracker. And as he took it, and they would have done this in obedience to what Moses had commanded, what God had commanded through Moses. You make bread without yeast, something eaten in haste, because you're going to have to leave. The whole meal is designed to remind you, hey, they left in a hurry because God rescued them. Hundreds of years in slavery, and now that day they had to leave quick. And Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. And he passed it around among them and said, eat of this. And they did. This is my body. I'm the Passover lamb. It's Passover. I'm the lamb. You had to eat the lamb in a meal ready for haste because the exit is coming. I'm showing you a way out of sin. I'm showing you a way out of death. I'm the spotless lamb of God. Eat of this and remember me. I'm going to die so you can live. Never forget that. And Luke goes on. After the supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. My blood is going to be shed. The next day, a crown of thorns was placed on his head, and blood would have been running down his face. A spear was thrust in his side. His hands and feet were nailed to a cross, and blood would have been coming out. And Jesus passed the cup at the end of supper, at the end of the Last Supper, and the disciples drank of it. So this is my blood shed for you. The blood was painted on the door frames, on the door frame on the top and the sides of the door frame of the houses so the angel of death could pass over. If you believe in me and put your trust in me, then even though you die, you'll live. The angel of death will pass over you. But my blood makes this possible. Don't forget. The Passover was a service, a memorial. So the Israelites would never forget. Communion is a memorial, so we'll never forget. I need a Savior, because otherwise I'm a slave to sin and I can't get out. I need a Savior, because of my sins, I can never forgive them on my own. I can't be absolved of them by my own works or my own effort. 
And so, Jesus, you've got to save me. And Jesus said, I've waited my whole life for this. That's why he came. So the angel of death will pass over us. Our sins will be washed away. And we can live with him forever in the promised land of heaven. This morning, we're going to have a chance to remember what God did for us as we take Holy Communion together. And we have serving tables at the front of the room and in the back of the room. In just a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer for us. After that, I'm going to invite you to come forward. This is a meal for anyone who acknowledges, I need forgiveness for my sins. I'm grateful that Jesus' body was broken for me. I'm grateful that his blood was shed for me. And I don't ever want to forget that. If that's you this morning, after I lead us in a word of prayer, I'm going to invite you to come. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today and for us to read a little bit from your word and to understand who you are and why Passover was such a big deal and why Holy Communion is such a big deal. And God, I don't want to ever take anything that you give us for granted. You gave us your only son. He was sinless and I'm sinful. Without his forgiveness, well, how can I stand before you? And God, I'm grateful for Jesus. He died so I can live. And I don't want to forget that. In just a moment of silence now, before you come, would you thank the Lord and say, God, I'm grateful I can be here today. I'm grateful that you forgive sinners like me. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, who made all these things possible. Amen.